Well, welcome again to City Life. If you got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 11. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 as we continue to march through Mark. In chapter 11, verse 12, if you got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you got the Version app, you can swipe there. Uh, I'll be reading the New Living Translation. And uh, if you don't have either of those, you're in luck. There's Bibles in the pews. So <laughs> you got all kinds of options. But we'll be there in a minute. Mark 11, verse 12. But we're continuing tonight in our series, which we're simply calling Wait What? And maybe you're thinking, what, why would you name your sermon that or your sermon series that? Well, there was a New York Times bestseller that actually came out pretty recently. And uh, it was sparked by a commencement address by the dean of education at Harvard. And I think the commencement address itself was in 2016. And in this address, he talked about important questions in life. And he said of the question, wait, what? He said, wait, what is actually a very effective way of asking for clarification. Wait, what is at the root of understanding? And what he was saying is slowing down to make sure you understand. It pays off in life to, to ask the right questions. So what we've slowed down in this series to ask is the question, how often do we miss out on understanding who Jesus is, on understanding why Jesus came and what that means for us and what he speaks over us because we don't slow down enough to ask the questions that lead to this deeper understanding. Because too often with our Bible reading, if it's happening at all, it's, it's, it's rushed, right? It's a, a task on our to-do list. It's a, it's a transaction on our to-do list rather than sitting down in an active and living relationship with an active and living God who wants to encounter us daily and speak to us every day through his word. And we've talked about how the Gospel of Mark doesn't especially help with this because the Gospel of Mark, we, it's the fast break gospel. It's, it's constant action. Just jumps from one uh, instance to the next immediately. <laughs> Mark uses the word immediately 41 times in some 16 chapters. And yet another reason that we get caught skimming through Mark and skimming through the Gospels is we know what happens. If we've read it before, right? If you've been in the church for some time, you've heard these miracles, you know, spoiler alert, Jesus goes to the cross. And then spoiler alert, Jesus doesn't stay dead, right? He rises after three days. And last week we joked about spoilers, how we despise people that post spoilers and say spoilers. And what's a spoiler? It's when you give away the end of a movie. And, and we... we we're so emphatic about this and get so worked up about this. Like, <laughs> I feel like the closest we ever get to world peace is anytime Avengers comes out and, like, people just agree we're not going to share what happens. <laughs> because nobody likes a spoiler. Because being surprised by a plot twist is, is a unique experience. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Once you know how a book or a movie is going to end, it's never quite the same. You don't have the same anticipation, the same expectation. And last week we joked about uh, the old school spoiler from before social media. Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, right, in the sixth sense. Um, we joked about that, and, and we didn't really talk about it, but that movie put M. Night Shyamalan, the director, on the map. Uh, he became known for these, like, movies that towed the line between suspense and horror. They were always set a contemporary setting with supernatural themes, and there's always, like, a major plot twist at the end. And so he had a little run, and he's made a little rebound with... Uh, what is it, split in glass recently, but he definitely had a low point for like years of where his, mo his movies were not uh, getting good reviews and they just weren't good movies. And there was one called The Happening, which in my opinion was probably his low point. Um, Alyssa knows about it. Maybe some of you don't know about it. So just a brief uh, synopsis of the movie in a sentence. People are inexplicably killing themselves and nobody knows why and people begin suspecting that plants are releasing a pheromone 
into the air that's causing this behavior. It's triggering something in people's brains. So I want to I wanna show a clip. Don't worry, it's not a scary part or anything like that. But I, I want to preface it because in this movie, you're sitting there and you're wondering, why is the acting so weird? <laughs> like, Mark Wahlberg is the lead role, and I don't think he's on any of our, like, top three actors. Like, the Oscars probably aren't going to give him a Lifetime Achievement Award when he's done with his career. And yet, still, you're in this movie like, what is going on? Why is everybody acting so weird? And then in the midst of all this, like, at the heart of the movie, uh, this happens. Hello? My name is Elliot Moore. I'm just going to talk in a very positive manner, giving off good vibes. We're just here to use the bathroom. And then we're just going to leave. I hope that's okay. So, all right, yeah, blank stairs. Odd, odd scene in an odd movie, right? And so people talked about this scene. Mark Wahlberg retroactively talks about this scene, like just terrible, like hated it. And uh, people ran with it. Matter of fact, SNL ran with it. SNL did a skit where Mark Wahlberg talked to animals. And this is just, because it's so hilarious, this is just a portion. Now of I'm going to talk to a chicken. <laughs> hey, chicken, how's it hanging? A lot of people want to eat you, but I just want to talk to you, okay? <laughs> We should do a film together. What do you think? <laughs> well, chicken, I'm not joking around, okay? This is the real thing. I mean, this could be huge. <laughs> all right, well, think about it. Say hi to your mother for me, all right? <laughs> now I'm gonna talk to a goat. <laughs> hey, goat. It's good to see you. I like your beard. I had a beard like that in The Perfect Storm. Did you see that movie? Did you, did you see The Perfect Storm, Goat? <laughs> say hi to your mother for me, okay? I'm gonna start closing my sermons and then as you guys leave, say hi to your mother for me, okay? <laughs> but why, why was it so, why did people talk about it so much? Why was it so weird? Why did SNL make a skit about it? Why would people run with it? It's just an odd scene in an obscure movie. It's because it's weird to talk to plants. Like to, to have a conversation, maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe some of you are quirky, you name your plants, right? Maybe you apologize when you haven't watered it, but to have like a heart to heart, a candid conversation with a plant, it's weird, it's not normal behavior. So with this understanding, if we're all on the same page, let's turn to our text. It's in, in Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 12 through 25 is where we'll be. Mark 11, 12 through 25. You've had time to turn, I had to turn there real quick. Verse 12, Jesus curses the fig tree. It says, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, 
The scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, the disciples, excuse me, Jesus and the disciples left the city. And the next morning, as they passed the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you that you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. So the title of the sermon tonight is Fig Leaves, Fast Starts, and False Advertising. Fig Leaves, Fast Starts, and False Advertising. Jesus doesn't just talk to this fig tree full of leaves. He unleashes an, an outburst of anger, right, aimed directly at this plant. So rather than the happening where the plants are killing humans, Jesus, through this curse, kills this plant. I was reading commentaries about this passage, and one author said it's a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. Right? Isn't this a case of, I mean, to me, when I first read it, it seems like Jesus is wasting his miraculous power and energy because he's hangry. Right? <laughs> he's hungry and he's angry at this tree because it didn't have the fruit that the leaves promised. You know, wouldn't a savior of, of wisdom and mercy, like what would Jesus do if you posed this situation to maybe your young child who's been in Sunday school? This tree didn't have any fruit. What would you expect Jesus to do? Right, being gracious and merciful, maybe walk up to the tree and say, I, I command you to bear fruit, and the next day there's a harvest of, of hundreds of, of figs. That's kind of based on Jesus who calms storms, welcomes children, heals the sick, more along the lines of what I would expect but instead, the last miracle we see in the Gospel of Mark before Jesus goes to the cross is one that brings death and not life. You know, Proverbs talks about how your tongue has the power of life and death. And the indication here is to use it for life. And here we see Jesus doing the opposite to this plant. And so not just that, the context of Jesus talking to a plant, which we saw is, you know, kind of quirky and odd. And Jesus going into the temple right, to, to flip tables. All of this ties together. The question is how. So you read this, this text and you might be perplexed. And as we've talked about in this series, as we talked about in our myth-busting series, when you're reading through scripture and you have to scratch your head because you're like, I don't understand. Look at the context of that passage, but then look at the context of, of scripture as a whole, the content of scripture as a whole. And to do that tonight, I want to turn all the way back to Genesis, right, because who talks to trees? Who speaks to trees? Uh, the God who created them by speaking them into existence. Right? God doesn't just talk to them. He speaks them into existence. God created a world full of trees, a garden of Eden full of trees. And he had one tree in the garden that he told Adam and Eve not to partake in. Spoiler alert, they ate the fruit. Right? They ate the fruit, and that came with consequences. They knew this beforehand, so they hide from God. And one of the resulting consequences is that for the first time in their nakedness, they felt shame. Again, like we talked about in communion, after they took and eat, they felt shame for the first time. So the strategy in their shame and their nakedness is they take fig leaves, which are apparently the biggest leaves in Canaan. So some wisdom here, right? And they, and they 
sewed them together to make the first underwear, right? Fruit of the figs, fig of the loom, whatever you want to call it, right? This was the, the first underwear they made out of fig leaves. And uh, perhaps because of the placement, the fig tree became known for fertility. It was a symbol of fertility. And we see in Genesis that Abraham and Sarah, their promised fertility, even in their old age, becoming the lineage that would produce the nation that would become God's people, Israel. Maybe it's because of this that in the Old Testament that God links Israel prophetically to a fig tree again and again. So anyone familiar with Old Testament scripture would know this, that, that the Old Testament ties Israel to a fig tree multiple times. And anyone that's familiar with the Old Testament would have known that Israel did not yield its fruit as God's covenant people in due season, and they were sent into exile. The fig tree Israel in the Old Testament fails in history. For us, it's perplexing, this cursing of the fig tree, but for the disciples who it says heard this exchange, saw what happened, there would have been a light bulb moment when, when they connected Israel's history to this tree. But it's more than just a historic statement. It's also a prophetic statement about the present. I believe it speaks to our present here tonight, no matter what we're walking in. But it also speaks to Jesus' present in that moment and specifically the temple. Just as the healing of the blind man last week was sandwiched on either side by uh, descriptions of the disciples' blindness, their inability to see who Jesus was, their, their blindness spiritually, this fig tree... And the account of its cursing and its death sandwiched this account in the temple. Just like the passage last week, this passage this week isn't meant for interpretation and isolation. The cursing and the subsequent death of the fig tree, again, sandwiched Jesus' actions in the temple. And it says that the crowd is amazed by this, what Jesus does in the temple. But if you look at the word in the Greek, it's not the kind of amazed that you maybe feel at the end of a movie when you clap your hands or at the end of a concert. It's like a perplexed amazed, stupefied amazed. They were thinking, wait, what just happened? <laughs> what did Jesus just do in here? Why would he do that to the temple? And you know, as a, a close follower of Christ, his disciples who had heard him talk about how the temple would be destroyed, they might have been asking the question, why would he try to reform something that he said was going to be destroyed soon anyways? But this wasn't a simple display of protest. This was a prophetic announcement of judgment. Right? Jesus was a prophet. Prophets don't just make verbal announcements. Often they engage in a prophetic action to communicate. And the fig tree, like his actions in the temple, was a prophetic declaration. The fig tree, having started in Genesis with Adam and Eve, it takes us full circle. And so if you start studying a fig tree, let me tell you, fair warning, it is a rabbit hole. You could study fig trees. You start Googling fig trees, looking up stuff on fig trees. It is an agricultural, botanical rabbit hole. There's diagrams, charts about when the fig tree should have been blooming, when you would expect that in, in that region. And some would say it was too early, right? There, there must be something wrong with the translation of the text because Jesus would have known it was too early for fully ripe figs on that tree. But I don't think this, this detail in Mark is as much as an egregious error as I think it's another wait what moment where we're supposed to look beyond the surface and dig deeper into the symbolic. For one, like I just begin to think about Jesus. If, if Jesus could predict, as he does, just a chapter away from this, that there was a cult somewhere in the city that his disciples could go to, they could untie it, the owner would be cool with them taking it for Jesus to, to ride in, 
And he knew exactly where it was. He had the foresight for that. Couldn't he see that this tree didn't have figs on it? Right? Or, or, or if he could feed 5,000 from just a couple loaves and fishes, couldn't he somehow make something happen here where he could be fed and not stay hangry? But also, Telly, the word Mark uses here for season, it's not the agricultural term that farmers would have used for the season of harvest. It's actually the spiritual term kairos. It's the religious term that Jesus used to signify the coming of the kingdom of God. It's this idea, we need to dive beyond the surface and into the prophetic symbolism. And if you dive into the Old Testament, there's plenty of it. If you look at Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, God says of Israel, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. And here Israel isn't just compared to a fig tree, it's taken a step further. They're the early fig. In Micah chapter 7, verse 1, it says, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. Why did God crave early figs? Why was Jesus looking for figs early on this tree? Well, Israelites that worked the ground that were farmers, they knew that first fruits belonged to God. That that was how it was set up, that you were to give God your first fruits. And if you look at a fig tree, it's interesting. You study the fig tree. You dive down the rabbit hole. The fruit comes before the leaves. The, the leaves on a fig tree are there so that it can provide shade for the fruit. So that means anywhere there are leaves, there should be figs. Leaves are basically an advertisement on the tree saying, hey, come and eat, right? Take and eat. And this is where fast starts and false advertising come in. This tree catches Jesus' eye because it has a fast start. It's an early bloomer. And it's early foliage signals that it should have had early figs. And make no mistake, in life, I'd rather have a good start than a bad one, right? Agreed? Right? I'd, I'd rather have a good start than a bad one, but a great start or a good start in life doesn't guarantee a happy ending. Any more than a, a bad start in life guarantees a, a pitiful one or a, a bad one. You look at the parable of the four soils, another agricultural image that Jesus gives us. Three out of four soils receive the seed, and it says it shoots up with quick growth. Right? The, the, the plant develops leaves almost immediately, and yet two out of three, they don't produce a crop. Now, again, in an, an agricultural society, the point of this parable wouldn't have been lost on Jesus' listeners. No matter how quick the initial growth, if you're a farmer and your crop doesn't have a harvest, that's disastrous. That's disaster for you and your family and your livelihood. Now, this parable of the four soils, it's, it sparked debate about eternal security left and right, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about good soil that goes bad. He's saying pretty clearly that early returns, they're not what truly matters. Leaves aren't the goal. Fruit is. In our lives with Christ, fruit from genuine relationship with God that produces a harvest of righteousness, fruit from coexisting and living with the Holy Spirit and walking in the fruits of the Spirit, this is the harvest that God desires from us. And you know, in agriculture and farming, again, people that, that would harvest figs or harvest fruit or, or vegetables, to have these blooms, these this foliage, without fruit, it's often a sign of decay. It's often a sign of something that's happening underneath the ground with the roots, even that the plant is dying. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's not that he was, he was blinded by its false start. He saw where it was going. He just kind of sped up the process. 
You know, the leaves also turn out to be false advertising. The leaves wrote a check that the tree couldn't cash. Again, that's like advertising. Like, hey, if the leaves are here, we're providing shade for the fruit that should be under these leaves. It was all expectation, no satisfaction. Right? All leaves but no fruit. And false advertising in our culture is a pretty serious offense. Some examples. Anybody remember Airborne? Right? Airborne was a big deal around the turn of the century. Like, we're going to fly, we're going to be in one of those aluminum tubes in an airplane for hours to get to the DR, right, a germ cesspool, right? And, and their, their thing was like, take an airborne before you get on the plane because airborne with all of the vitamins and all the things that are in there, it prevents you from getting sick. You won't get sick. It boosts your immune system. At least that was the claim. They finally tested this stuff that was selling like hotcakes and it was proven to be totally false and they had to pay $23 million in a lawsuit because that's false advertising, right? New Balance, this is... Anybody remember when New Balance came out with these sneakers in 2011 where they said, if you just wear them, uh, let me read the quote because it's great. It claimed that with its features, uh, it used hidden balance board technology that encourages muscle activation in the glutes, quads, hamstring, and calves, which in turn burns calories. Basically, they were like, skip the gym, right? Just wear these shoes, wear them around the house, and you'll, you'll look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Because you're working all these different muscles. They actually tested the shoes. Not only did they not help you in that way, they said it increased the risk of injury, right? <laughs> the way these shoes were built. So they had to give out $100 refunds to everyone who bought the shoes, as well as $2.3 million in fines. But maybe my favorite case of false advertising ever, and whoever sued them is a genius, because Red Bull got sued because their drink doesn't give you wings. <laughs> Literally. Duh, right? You watch that. But somebody sued them, took them to court. And they had to shell out $13 million in fines. And, hey, you, missed, you must have missed out on this. I, I cashed in on this. They $10 refunds for anybody who would ever drink a Red Bull. Sorry if you missed the ship. <laughs> but it was said of Red Bull that when this whole ruling was made, that such deceptive conduct and practices mean that Red Bull's advertising and marketing is not just puffery. And I love that word puffery. But it is instead deceptive and fraudulent and is therefore actionable. So Jesus saw this fig tree's false advertising as puffery, right? But not just puffery, fraudulent and actionable puffery at that. I'm going to start working that word in my book. I'm going to work that into my sermon next week, puffery. <laughs> I don't know if that's British or what. But the same way these companies were judged in the court of law, Jesus judges this tree for false advertising. But the fig tree shows that when Jesus went to the temple and was flipping tables, he wasn't trying to reform or cleanse the temple. He was announcing its judgment, its disqualification. It had given off the impression that it was a place where God was worshipped and honored and obeyed, but ultimately that was false advertising. You know, Jesus, he quotes Jeremiah 7 when he calls it a den of robbers. So many, when you hear the term robbers, a den of robbers, they... they Assume that Jesus is talking about the fact that money is being exchanged in the temple, and that's what he's angry about. But while the placement and, and the practice of the exchange of money had become problematic, they had set it up in the court of the Gentiles, this exchange of money is what made it possible for people to worship God. There was the shekel tax, which, like giving at a church, it, it enabled the temple to keep functioning as a place of worship for God's people. When you look at the context of Jeremiah 7, where it talks about a den of robbers, it's not the den of robbers where the robbery actually happens. The den of robbers is where it's like their hideout. They're the bad guys, right? They rob people, and then the den of robbers is where they go to hang out afterwards. 
And so the temple had become where the religious thought they could hide safely in forgiveness and fellowship with God, regardless of how they acted. It had become a place where those religious leaders who Jesus accuses of various things, causing people to neglect their needy parents. One translation says they devoured widows' houses. Jesus accuses them of ignoring justice and the love of God. Right? The temple became the place where they thought they could hide from God's judgment, hide behind ritual, hide behind fig leaves. See, God hates hypocrisy. And the treatment of the fig tree was a commentary on the hollow religion that was taking place in the place of worship in the temple. It had become just as much a place of hiding as it had a place of holiness. So the application tonight, we should all take home. That the church can become just as much a place of hiding as it is a place of holiness. Like There are few places where you can hide from God so well as in church. I will tell you that. Because whether you're a, a, you come once a month, a couple times a month because you want to pay your dues and your respects. Or maybe you come every week. You would never miss a week, right, because you want, to, you want to check those boxes, right, to have full assurance, you know, that God loves you, that you're doing well. We grab the fig leaf and we hide behind ritual. And like Adam and Eve hiding behind the fig leaves in the garden, we can hide behind the fig leaves of religious activity. But, you know, eventually... <laughs> If you came to church for the first time ever, you could learn to blend in, right? The, the, you come in, right, as worship starts, the upbeat song is where you clap your hands. Slows down a little bit. When it builds to the bridge, that's when you raise your hands, right? The greeting time is a good time to use the bathroom, right? You slide out, and then you come back, sit during the, the sermon, sit back, try not to fall asleep, and you leave. You've checked the box, right? And you've essentially hidden. It's so easy to learn... Christianese, the, the language, the behavior, and then blend in. So you hide, but you never heal. Like what Steph shared at the end of worship, she didn't know I was going here tonight, but it was so powerful. Because she could have broke that, and we got a rug there, she could have swept it all under the rug. Right? But she was talking about how we got to take that brokenness to God. When you hide, you never heal. You sweep it under the rug, it's never cleaned up. When you put it behind fig leaves, it's not allowed to heal. The shame and brokenness, again, that, that the enemy gave Adam and Eve after they took and eat, they hid behind the bushes. You can be in the house of God and be just as lost as the prodigal son was. You know, in the famous parable, the younger brother, he has like this crash course of, of self-indulgence. And in a very traditional way, it's easy to look at that and say, yeah, he's out in the world sinning. Any religious person would be like, yeah, I, I identify that as <laughs> he's on a sin streak. <laughs> but the older brother, he's very good. He says to the father, I've never done a thing wrong. The father doesn't correct him. He had been good. Right? He'd been living in the house, in his father's house, yet he too was alienated from the father's heart. You know, the, the, the song we sang tonight, again, just the Holy Spirit working. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Those are powerful words. If you walk in relationship with God. There's also a place for you where you, you can't hide if you want to. And the older son did it by being very good, right, by self-righteousness. You know, in the, in the framework of organized religion, the Pharisees were very good. In the framework of organized religion or just religion in general, like if you just look at religious activity, they're better than all of us, right? To be a Pharisee, you had to have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. How many of you have read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? That's where we punt the ball, like, at the very beginning of our reading plan. We're like, end of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is, this is rough. They had that memorized, right? 
The older son wasn't lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of it, because it was his self-righteousness that kept him from the father. You know, at the end of the parable, the son's in the party. It's the older son and his self-righteousness who we don't know what happens with him. You know, these are the parables that got Jesus killed because they were aimed at the Pharisees and they didn't handle it very well. See, when you hide behind religious routines and activity, you end up doing it out of, like, low-grade fear, anxiety over your assurance. Like, like, is this enough? Not out of joy. You know, the older brother shows us that activity for God in and of itself or proximity to God in and of itself is not the same as relationship with God. Knowing God, you can remain hidden right in the house of God, just as he did in the house of the Father. Activity, proximity, that doesn't save us. Jesus does. Jesus saves. Again, the par- this parable, the prodigal son, is one of the things that got Jesus killed. And then Jesus... Going in the temple and wrecking shop is also one of the things that got to kill. We, we read it says that they, they began to plan how they could kill him. They didn't take this very well. Because the Pharisees' lives lived out in religious activity in the temple like the older son's life lived in the father's house. You look at them on the surface, they look in leaf, right? They're in bloom. But it was all activity and no fruit. All leaf, no fruit. You know, we can look around this room and there's lives that look in leaf. We we envy the person with the nice leaves who looks to have it all together. The super mom, the perennial winner, the perfect family, the Christian who seems to have all their I's dotted and T's crossed. But, you know, sometimes upon closer examination, right, there's no fruit. It's like when Samuel was looking for the next king. God says, don't look on the surface, look at the heart. I look at the heart. God looks for fruit. You know, fun random fact. Again, I was just kind of digging around in this rabbit hole that probably took up too much of my time on fig trees. Fig leaves apparently are, like, notoriously itchy, right? They're not great for hiding behind, certainly not for loincloths. Like, God was probably coming around the corner like, are you serious? You went with fig leaves? Like, goodness. We can try to mask our busyness. We can mask our brokenness with busyness to try to look like we have it all together. And we're just making the situation worse. It's like hiding it behind fig leaves. Another random fact, this fig tree is the only tree that Jesus Jesus curses in the Bible. And what happened to the fig tree is the same thing that happened to the veil at Jesus' death. Toppled, top to bottom. Jesus became a curse for us on the tree, the cross, so that we can come out of hiding and step into God's presence in a new way. Because our fig tree can be toppled and that veil has been torn. You know, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way, right? And here's the thing. God's desire in in, in being okay is not that we would get more busy for him, check more boxes. He wants us to rest in relationship with him and let his heart change ours. Like, uh, you'll try to share the gospel with people. No, I got to change my life first before I come to Christ. No, you come to Christ and he changes you. That's the pattern. God's matters are matters of the heart because he realizes all our activity, our words, our actions, they flow from the heart. And Paul connects the human heart to the temple or the body to the temple in the New Testament when he would ask the church in Corinth, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You know, the fig tree was this direct parallel to the temple. All activity, no fruit. Is your temple, your life, bearing fruit? Because the mandate for fruit wasn't decreased in the New Testament. If anything, it's increased. All these different passages. Oop. Speak to the bearing of fruit, the fruit that God desires to see in our lives. Step in on one of them, right? The fruits of the Spirit. 
But Jesus, Jesus, he launches from his actions with the fruitless fig tree into a comment on prayer. And when you look at the passage as a whole, it's telling because what did he shout in the temple? He quoted Isaiah 56 where he said, this is meant to be a house of prayer. And not just a house of prayer. A house of prayer for what? All nations. All nations. If I could have the, the worship team come up. Again, there's, you read that list. There's so many different takes on the fruit God wants in our lives. There's so many different uh, harvests of of fruit that God wants from our lives. But Jesus here speaks to this house of prayer for all nations. And I believe that's the fruit we should take home tonight. The temple had this series of holy barriers, all these different barriers in the temple which would tell people of different ethnicities, genders, health situations, cleanliness or uncleanliness, like you, you cannot pass, no entry. And that was supposed to speak to the holiness of God, right, and foster a, a, a healthy fear of God amongst the people. But what it had done when you see the religious leaders in Jesus' time is it had bred this spirit of exclusivity. It had just fed their pride. We'd found another way to turn uh, something God had given us for good into pride. But I tell you tonight, God desires an inclusive faith. He asks for all to come. Again, it's okay to not be okay. You come to him. And he'll help you be healed. He'll help you be changed. Man, I would tell you, if the church is a place, and I believe this place is a place where we readily recognize we have nothing to offer God that he doesn't already have. We have nothing that we can achieve before God that would earn anything that Jesus hasn't already achieved at the cross. And when you believe that, it should, as a result, be open to all people. Because none of us have achieved higher status than anyone else. The ground is even at the base of the cross. The lame, the poor, the broken, the Gentile for that time. You read the epistles, whether it's class, gender, race. Right, We're all one in Christ. Like I think of the, the first half of this banner. Psalm 67 verses 1 and 2. First half says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. I think early on in our relationship with God, that, that becomes the cry of our heart. God, shine on me. Bless me. Bless us even. Right, Shine on my church. But I would tell you that the maturity God desires from us, the fruit he wants to see in our lives is embracing the second half. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. You know, at some point, we have to break the huddle. We come at this church in our homes, turn outward, step outside the four walls, and be and live what we proclaim here. And Steph hit on it at the end of worship. Days like yesterday, what happened in Virginia Beach, it's this sobering reminder that our nation needs that. Our nation needs us to take the hope we have and bring it into dark places and shine a light in dark places. Right, like we, we're gonna send a team to the DR, right? They're on mission. We're sending them in two weeks, but we need to feel just as sent when we walk out these doors. Right, that is a mission field. Your neighborhood, your workplace, your school. Now, is there practical steps that need to be taken in our nation, debates worth having, right? Sure, definitely. But we aren't the ultimate solution, nor is the work of our hands. We're all broken, which means we're all systemic participants in the problem. There's a a great lyric by one of my favorite bands. It says, we can't medicate man to perfection again. We can't legislate peace in our hearts. We can't educate sin from our souls. It's been there from the start. See, our world needs what we have. 
He's the Jesus we spent tonight worshiping and digging into his life and his teaching. And what they need is not our hot take or, or our personal wisdom or experience. They need Jesus. But revival out there is going to start with revival in here. World doesn't need any more empty fig trees without the fruit of the Spirit. Who come into conversations just looking to, to show other people they're wrong. No, they need people with the fruit of the Spirit active in their lives. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us active in our lives as we follow Christ. So if we could stand, we're going to go back into whatever this song's name. <laughs> but maybe tonight you've been, you've been hiding, holding back. Maybe it's a, a certain area of your life where you're dealing with guilt and shame because you know you have to, you have to tackle this, but you just keep so easy to just turn to your phone or the next distraction and bury it again. But God just wants you tonight to take whatever that thing is out from under the rug, out from behind the fig leaves and deal with it. The beautiful thing about the cross is grace is still available tonight. You can come before the cross and say, I'm not okay. And God helps us not to stay that way. So maybe it's a, a certain thing, or maybe it's just you in totality. You've been holding back because of guilt or shame. When we come here and worship, you just kind of feel distant. When it's moments like this, you just kind of feel distant because you're hiding. God's like the father of the prodigal that's waiting on that porch, just waiting for the, the son to come home. And he's begging that older son to come in. Hey, come into, the, come into relationship with me. Come into this party. Now, I would encourage you tonight, man, God pursues you. I don't even say God is chasing you, right? God wants relationship with you. And the siren that's going off is not a police siren where he's coming to like lock you up because you've done wrong. No, the siren that's chasing you is an, is an ambulance because he wants to find you, connect with you, and bring you healing. So I would encourage you tonight, whether it's one thing, maybe as we worship, the Holy Spirit will just lead your thoughts or maybe it's just your life as a whole. You've kind of held back talk about reading the Bible, and you're like, I don't, I don't even know my Bible in so long, right? Because we hold ourselves back thinking God's waiting to punish us. No, God's waiting for a relationship. God, I pray that you would, God, use this word tonight, God, not to condemn, <laughs> but to encourage, Lord God, to remind us of your goodness, your grace, and your mercy that we celebrated at communion. That Jesus came died on that cross, died on that tree so that we can come out from the, the, the fig leaves we're hiding behind. Jesus died on that cross so that the veil could be torn so that in moments like these, we don't have to hold back, but we can step into the throne room of God and let him minister to our hearts. God, so I pray that we would believe the words in this song that in my Father's house, there's a place for me, that, that guilt and shame wouldn't be able to keep us outside that door. That I'm a child of God, yes I am, and God, that we wouldn't uh, use the church to be a place of, of hiding, checking the box, <laughs> and then going about our business, Lord God. But th this would be a place where we are equipped for the work of ministry. The world needs us <laughs> to leave this place and be ministers, ambassadors, reconcilers, sharers of the good news. So God, if there's any issue in our hearts that's keeping us from bearing fruit, fruit that the world needs in our lives, I pray that you would just show us. God, would you show us as we sing, Lord God, how we can give more of our life to you so we can give you more glory this week and every week for the rest of our lives. And if you already know there's something, you need prayer for anything. Laura and Christina would love to pray for you. I'll be right here. I would love to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything at all, we'd love to pray, but let's all worship in this moment.